Great. Yes. Thank you for your prayers. Um, I've had several people come to me this morning and say they were praying for this. And that's no small thing. Um, as you know, prayer is no small thing. And I really uh, appreciate that, especially this morning and the encouragement and uh, pray that God would be glorified through this. So Psalm 8. <clears throat> Again, I apologize for my voice. I've got some allergies that usually come around this time of year, which is why I asked for the special accommodation here instead of the headset. Um, so if I can make it through this without sneezing, that will be uh, another answer to prayer. So thank you. So Psalm 8. <clears throat> to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. <clears throat> you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So I think we can all relate to a time or another in our lives, staring up at the the clear night sky, looking at the stars, all the wonderful stars, uh, much like David does here in verse 3 of Psalm 8. I grew up in a very rural area in Pennsylvania. There wasn't any big cities nearby, so it seemed like every night where there weren't any clouds, you could actually look up and see the stars. I remember sitting in the backyard with my grandfather, who lived next door at the time, uh, looking up at those stars and him saying, look at all those stars, more than you can count. Doesn't that make you feel so small? He used to say that all the time. And I remember that. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to remind myself about the size of my person, the size of my domain, the size of my town, the size of the world, the size of my problems and struggles in comparison to the size of this universe that are holy righteous God spoke into existence. And the reflection of how God, the God that created that wondrous heavens, still cares about me, having created all that. And he doesn't care for me in a nominal way. He sent his son on my behalf, and on your behalf, and on behalf of all who would trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. So I really think the theme of this psalm is in the first part of verse 1, and you'll see it's repeated in verse 9 as well, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But that's also kind of a cop-out. I understand that. So I came up with my own remedial theme. Um, the majesty of God and the salvation of a helpless humanity. So Psalm 8 is our first example, as Jeff mentioned last week, in the study of a praise psalm. This particular one has also been called a psalm of creation or a hymn of creation praise. It's a little different from the other hymns in the Psalter, and it does not have the usual call to praise the Lord. Instead, it begins and ends with the direct praise of the Lord, as we read. <clears throat> and its authorship is traditionally assigned to King David, as we also read. It is, in fact, the only hymn in the Old Testament composed completely as a direct address to God. <clears throat> 
So let's start with the first part of verse 1 and then the repetition in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This repetition at the beginning and the end of the psalm forms what is called inclusio, which is just a fancy literary device. This is used to highlight what is important in understanding the meaning of the psalm. In this case, in the majesty of the Lord, and that the majesty seen throughout the earth is connected to his name. Commentators Craigie and Tate explain that God's name and God's majesty are poetically synonymous, meaning they're the same thing. For the majesty of God's person in creation are revealed to mankind, the divine name and all that that implies. So God's name is important, and then it tells us who he is. It's also important to note that the translation of the first Lord in verse 1 is not the same as the second. In some Bibles, my Bible has this. It's actually in caps. Um, The Lord is in caps in verse 1. This is not a generic name for God, but the personal name of the God of Israel. The God from Exodus 3.14 who says, I am who I am. God gave this name Yahweh to himself as the absolute existing God. He is simply God. He was not created. He does not change and he does not die. He is absolute. He depends on nothing and everything else depends on him. There is no place anywhere, not on this earth, but in the heavens. There is not a place where God is not absolute. Everywhere, everything depends on him. So what David's really saying here, O Lord, our Lord, is our God, Yahweh, is our master. The second part of verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth, is stating a strong reference for the truth expressed in the first part of the verse. So as we marvel at the glory of the heavenly night sky, David is expressing the greatness of our absolute God. The word translated glory in our translation is actually better translated to mean beauty. So what David is saying, too, is that God's creation, Yahweh's creation, specifically the heavens as referenced here, reflect the beauty of God who created it. And that is an important theme that we'll come back to later. This can also be seen in Psalm 19.1, which reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I can't think of a better physical expression of what our God is capable of than the heavens. And there are numerous other references like this in the Bible. Um, Genesis 1.1, of course, uh, Exodus 20.11, Amos 5.8, Isaiah 40.26, 44.24, and many others in Isaiah. Job 38.31-33, Nehemiah 9.6, and Jeremiah 10.12, to just name a few. We'll talk more about this at a later time as well. But for now, let's move on to verse 2. Verse 2 reads, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now the first thing that comes to mind when most people read the first part of this verse, maybe it's just because we just went through the Easter season, was when Jesus quotes it to the chief priests and scribes when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is the account from Matthew 20.16. I think we can draw several key points from this passage in time that Jesus uses it. The Matthew 21 passage goes like this. Jesus commands two of his disciples to go and bring a donkey and a colt 
They throw their cloaks over them, and Jesus sits on them and rides into Jerusalem. People were excited by this. They're throwing palms on the road in front of him and shouting, Hosanna. We pick it up in verse 12, continue through 14. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus then clears the money changers from the temple and heals the blind and the lame that came to see him. But then in verse 15 of Matthew 21, things get a little more interesting. It reads, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Now, that the word indignant, note that the word indignant wasn't used to describe the chief priests and scribes who were the elite scholars from Israel at the time when Jesus made his triumphal entry. It wasn't mentioned when he was clearing the temple or when he was he healing the sick. Do you know what indignant means? We've all heard the word indignant. I don't know that I really understood what it means, but that's probably just me. So I looked it up. It is the feeling or showing anger or annoyance of what is perceived as unfair treatment. <clears throat> so these Jewish Bible scholars were angry that these children were giving glory to Jesus, saying, do you hear what they're saying? That's not fair. Who do you think you are? These scholars had missed something very important in their study of Psalm 8. And Jesus clearly points it out to them. And note that these are the same people that likely studied Psalm 8 intently, perhaps even memorized it, probably taught it, and the scribes probably wrote it over and over again. But they still missed the point of this part of the psalm. God doesn't use the wisdom or the strength or the influence of men to make a name for himself. Here he uses children, babies even. Another passage in Matthew gives another clear and concise example of Jesus doing this. Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26 reads, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God does not seek favor with the proud men of this world. He doesn't approach them and sheepishly ask them if maybe, just maybe, if they've got the time, they might consider joining his kingdom. Note the latter part of verse 2. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. There's no strength in a child. There's no strength in an infant. It's God. We see this over and over in the scriptures. God uses whoever he wants to defeat his enemies, even children, even infants, and even us. God uses the weakest of the weak, so as Corinthians 1.31 states, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it is the placement of verse 2, just before verses 3 and 4, reminding us again who God is, reminding us again who we are. So verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him. 
The main point of this passage is fairly obvious if we understand who we are and who God is. God is infinitely great, and man is nothing. God creates heaven with his fingers. John Trapp <clears throat> came up with a quote, or a quote that I found. Uh, John Trapp was a Bible commentator from the 1600s. He said, a most elaborate and accurate metaphor from embroiderers or from them that makes tapestry, which I thought was really interesting. The broad night sky that we view at night is nothing more than an embroidered tapestry of infinite proportions that God has stitched together with his fingers. So back to me sitting on the swing with my grandfather looking up at the stars at night. <clears throat> this was probably 30 or 35 years ago. It happened more than once. Like I said, it happened all the time. And for the record, my grandfather wasn't an astronomer. Uh, he was a train engine mechanic. He fixed steam locomotives on the Pennsylvania Railroad. As far as I know, he couldn't quantify how far the stars that make up the Big Dipper were. Do you ever stop to think about that? <clears throat> it's easy to forget that these types of things or take them for granted. The same stars that I looked at with my grandfather 30 years ago are still there. They're in the same place now as they were then. They're the same stars that David references here in Psalm 8. We can look at those stars today. They're in the exact same place. A humbling reminder that we exist in a very finite timeline that is but a speck of dust on the timeline of our infinite God. It's also a testament to man's depravity. This passage asks, what is man? We all know what man is. And when I say man, I obviously mean man or woman, human beings. Look at what man has accomplished by the grace of God since that time of David when he wrote this psalm, looking up at the stars. In fact, let's just look at the last 60 years just for fun. As you know, we've launched satellites into space. We've landed on the moon. We've now sent rovers to Mars several times. And there's a helicopter there now, so that's, that's a huge step. I read an account of someone who witnessed the launch of one of the space shuttles back when we were still using the space shuttles. And I've actually read this from several people. It, it, it's, it's, it's out there. Uh, what people have, have written this about the witness of the space shuttle or any sort of a rocket that we've blasted into space over the years. But he writes that it was one of the most memorable experiences of his life. He was standing miles away from the launch site. It was night. It's quiet except for the mumbling of people around him. And then the countdown starts. And the rockets fire. And the shuttle starts to lift off. And for a while, the light from the rockets makes it look like the sun is suddenly out. The experience is both deafening and exhilarating and brings some of the people around him to tears. In a matter of just two minutes, it's up so far. And so far away, you can barely see it or hear it. And the account of this man was that if he didn't worship God, he would be tempted to worship the men who created the space shuttle. Needless to say, that was awe-inspiring. We used the space shuttle to place the Hubble telescope into Earth's orbit in 1990. Have you ever seen some of the pictures from the Hubble telescope? They're all over the online. You can go to NASA. There's high-resolution photos you can download. <clears throat> to me, that's one of the greatest physical tools that we have to illustrate the overwhelming glory of God's creation. And thanks to the Hubble telescope and other machines like it, that God has given us the, the skills and intelligence to create 
we now have an understanding of God's creation that David didn't have when he wrote Psalm 8. Some quick examples. The distance from Earth to the edge of the observable, observable universe has since been quantified. We actually know this to the best of our abilities at this time. It's 46 billion light years. Just as a reminder, a light year is a distance, is the distance that light travels in one year, which is about 6 trillion miles. Trillion. So from one edge of the universe to the other is twice that distance, 92 billion light years. That's big. And that's only the part that we can observe from Earth with the tools that we have available to us today. We know it's bigger. That is the power of God. We are just man, but God has granted us the skills and knowledge to do big things. We know about the Apollo program that sent men to the moon. It happened over a period of 14 years. We landed on the moon six times. Do you know the number of people that were involved in the Apollo project? 400,000 over 14 years. Do you know the distance from the Earth to the moon? It's almost 240,000 miles. It took our spacecraft, traveling six times the speed of sound, three days to get there. Landing on the moon is perhaps one of the key human events, if not the key human event, of the 20th century. God created what seems to us an infinite universe instantly, just by saying it. So remember the psalmist's question in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Well, for one, man is sinful. He can literally see the glory of God. The expanse of the universe is just one example of this. The man sees now in 2021, and it's clearer now than it's ever been, and it keeps getting clearer every day. And instead of being more in awe of this power and beauty and indescribable glory of God, the degenerate man still refuses to see it for what it is. One could actually make the argument that our scientific progress is just further condemnation of the hardened hearts of man. Like the chief priests and scribes from Matthew 21, man is still missing something. But let's move on to verse 5 and through 8 for right now. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So in these verses, we learn a little more about who man is and how he fits into the order of things. Verse 5 says that man has been made a little lower than heavenly beings or angels. Verses 6 through 8 says that we have dominion over God's creation, including the animals, and even lists a few. So we start with that. We're not angels, but we're not animals, fish, or birds. So what are we? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.20 says, All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Charles Spurgeon says, We are not iron and not even clay. We are dust held together by daily miracle. I love that. A daily miracle. God's relationship to this miracle is well defined in Psalm 103, specifically verses 13 through 16, which read, 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So here David says, we're dust, and our days are like grass clippings just blowing in the wind. But we have dominion, it says. Verse 6 of the psalm tells us that man has dominion. We actually get the dominion from God, as Genesis tells us. So if I may take us back to verses 3 and 4 we spoke about earlier regarding the heavens, the earth that we live on is like a speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. I think we all agree with that, which was the point of all the facts and figures that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so we're a speck of dust on the earth made up of specks of earth, just in case we started thinking too highly of ourselves in the last five minutes. So what is dust? Well, dust is weak. It's transient. It blows all over the place. It's fragile. And God knows it. He never forgets this. But despite all that, he still gives us dominion over, over the rest of his creation. And back in the days before the fall of man, that dominion wasn't so bad. Everything lived in harmony. There was nothing needed that wasn't given to man. Did you ever stop and think about if the fall never happened, we really wouldn't have any need for a house? <clears throat> shelter is what house provides. We wouldn't need shelter. The weather is always perfect, in perfect harmony. There's never any tornadoes. There's never any rain that isn't supposed to be there. Um, we use houses to store our stuff. Before the fall of man, we didn't need stuff. Everything was provided as we needed it. <clears throat> Protection. We don't need that either. Everybody loves everybody else. Nobody's fighting each other. All the animals are friendly, and they're friendly to each other. So I ask you, has anyone here fully tamed their dominion? It takes a lot of effort to live. It's either effort from you or effort from someone doing things for you. It doesn't just happen. It seems it's never easy, and it is relentless. There are a lot of life lessons in the COVID pandemic over the last year and a half, the chief of them being maybe we really didn't have our dominion as buttoned up as we thought we did. A microorganism, smaller than a piece of dust, by the way, brought life as we know it to a screeching halt. And it's just one of the great illustrations that the efforts to recover and to conquer the creation of God's fallen world are immense. Just the act of eradicating your yard of small woodland creatures can be a challenge. Weather is an aspect of our dominion that we cannot control. <clears throat> Despite our best efforts in severe cases, we can do nothing but watch. Every time I talk about the weather, I'm reminded of my most memorable weather experience back when we lived in western New York in November of 2014. We received four feet of snow in 10 hours. I tried to go to work that morning. It just started snowing. I couldn't make it to work. If I had made it to work, I would have been stuck at work for a week. So I'm really thankful that God didn't let me go to work that but after we got the first four feet of snow, we got another two feet 24 hours later when we were stuck in our house for literally a week. We needed a giant high lift to come in and dig out our street. It was a mess for days, even after it quit snowing. Praise God that no one got sick, no one needed to go to the hospital. Everyone was healthy for that week because there's no way we could have gone anywhere. 
Anyway, it took a lot of time and effort of people clearing out the snow just from the town, just from our, our little street that we lived on, just from our driveway. But the following week, this was in November, we had three days where it was 60 degrees in full sun. And by the end of the week, the six feet of snow was literally gone, like it never happened. That's right, a hot ball of gas, 93 million miles away, melted the six feet of snow around my house in three days. That is the power of God's creation. I know everyone has examples of those types that they've experienced. I believe God uses these experiences to showcase his glory and our frailty and our dependence on him. So that's what a fallen world looks like. Viruses, chipmunks, and snowstorms, each showcasing our abilities to rule over our dominion are very limited, despite what we think at any given time. But there is another aspect of man. When God made man and woman, he made humans. And humans are unique in God's creation, that we are image bearers of God. The Bible tells us this. This is not true of any other creature. The Bible tells us that. And even the healthiest of human specimens will not live forever. Our bodies are transient, like dust. They wear out, they die. But God made us weak and put us in bodies made of dust for a reason. And that reason is so that we might anticipate something more. We long for the day when this body of dust will be replaced with a glorious new body that will be considerably more suited to live among the presence of God. And not just for another hundred years, but for eternity. Eternity. We are part of eternity. And that is what we long for. I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 45. And I wasn't going to read this whole thing, but it really tells the immensity of this better than I could put it in words. I mean, it is, it's the scriptures. So beginning with verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living, be living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body <clears throat> must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, your, in the Lord <coughs> your labor is not in vain. <clears throat> so our greatest hope, as referenced here in, in what I just read, is that this perishable 
perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But for now, we are dust, placed a little lower than the angels. And even Jesus, for a time, took his place alongside us to be a little lower than the angels. But while we often fail to live up to the dignity that God has given us, we are still his image bearers, not the angels, not the animals. A wise pastor who I had the privilege of studying with when I first moved to Michigan back in the early 2000s <clears throat> always used to refer to the corridor of time. I vividly remember him talking about this because he mentioned it pretty much every time we spoke. He says that God lived, looked down the corridor of time and by his sovereign vision planned for the redemption of mankind by planning a being who was fully human but also fully God. This is, of course, Jesus. And God would also look down that same corridor of time and see each humanity that would be saved by Jesus' death and resurrection and their faith and belief in accepting that mercy into their hearts. I'm now going to read Ephesians 1, uh, verses 7 through 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, man is not able and not willing to glorify God in the earth by fulfilling his role. Those last two verses of the four that I just read give us God's plan to fix this through his son Jesus. I believe that knowing the mystery of God's will and understanding his purpose makes a huge difference in our lives, of course. Anyone who's taken a casual look at the book of Ephesians, as the ladies did uh, last uh, these past few months, I see various contrasts between our old life outside of Christ and our new life in Christ. And the second half of the letter to Ephesians shows us how the imitators of God. The question is why? And the answer is in verse 10 of Ephesians 1. Because God has a plan to unite all things in him. This has a profound effect on how we live our lives. How we see opportunities that might come our way. How we see trials, how we see joys, hopes, and worries. It makes us willing to endure suffering when we know and accept God's plan. It makes us patient. It should make us bold ambassadors of the gospel as well. It allows us to say things in love to our children, like you need to comply with God's will for your life, not my will. And there's another Good Testament passage on this topic of God's plan for man that I, I could not talk about this without bringing up. And that's in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking of. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This passage again tells us that men, not angels, are the image bearers of God and have dominion over God's creation, at least in theory. But in light of sin, everything is not in subjection to him, that is us, man. But Christ, who was temporarily made lower than the angels in order to show God's glory through perfect subjection to God's plan living the sinless life that we could not live to bring many sons to glory. Amen? In closing, I want to read 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12, and then a quote from Tremper Longman and some uh, commentaries that Jeff provided that I found. I originally had earlier in this study, but I thought it made a suitable closing to this lesson. So 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Longman quote, he writes, God is glorious, and humanity as created in the image of God reflects that glory. It is a derivative glory, analogous to the way in which the moon reflects the light of the sun. I thought that was great. What a glorious symbol of our relationship with our Heavenly Father in the physical heavens of this world that he's put before us. May we not just be a pile of dust in the corner of a dark room somewhere. Instead, may, we, may God's work in us Cause us to reflect the light of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you.